Welcome to When I Was Your Age, a podcast where we explore themes such as deconstruction, anti-racism, and justice from the lens of authors, speakers, and activists who explain what they wish they knew when they were our age. On this episode of When I Was Your Age, we have none other than Miss Kathy Kong. Kathy is a writer, a speaker, and author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. She has become a dear mentor to me as both a Korean American woman and also an advocate for all. We talk about everything from imposter syndrome to eye cream to all things allyship Basically, you're not going to want to miss a single second. So thanks for being here. And as always, this is When I Was Your Age, and here's Kathy. All right. So the first question I have for you is just kind of can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, either faith or like your cultural identity kind of both and how that's kind of brought you to where you're at now yeah that's <laughs> um so I grew up I am Korean American and um some would call me like 1.5 generation although if you want to be really like picky about it it's probably like more like 1.75 I came to the U.S. when I was eight months old so I actually have no recollection of the motherland I don't I don't have that memory. I didn't go to school in Korea, um, but I still have, you know, some of the first photographs of myself here in the U.S. And some of them, um, the one that I can remember, my mom is in a yellow dress, and uh, my dad is in a suit, and I am in a white dress, uh, and we are in front of a church were in front of a Korean immigrant church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, being a Christian or going to church was never separate from being Korean. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the immigrant church for my parents and eventually as I was getting older for me was kind of a, a safe place, particularly for my parents. You know, it was the only place where everything was going to be in their mother tongue and uh, they were trying to make sense of their new life in the U.S. And, um, and actually when I started school in kindergarten um, in the north side of Chicago, I did not speak English. Wow. So I grew up only speaking Korean. And so when I went and started school, I couldn't speak English and there was some attempt at placing me in an ESL class, except that that was all very much geared towards Spanish speaking students. So that wasn't going to help me. (laughs) Um, And so folks talk about like their earliest memories of school and I don't have a ton of memories. And I think it has a lot to do with like the language acquisition Mm. process. Um, But I I remember church and I remember it always being kind of the centerpiece of the week. And it was the time where I think my impression as a child growing up was that it was the one place my parents were at ease. Mm. And so even at home with me and my sister, they weren't fully at ease. And I can see that now even more so because uh, my sister and I were both in our late 40s and we have our families. Um, My parents still live about an hour away in the town, the suburban town that we moved to when I was in second grade. Um, And they, you know, as they get older, it's much easier for them to want to communicate in Korean. And it's harder for us because we're no longer fluent. But that's how culture 
ethnicity and faith always were connected. So um, I always knew I was Korean. I knew that we were in America. I understood eventually that it was Korean American. It definitely wasn't until college where I heard the phrase Asian American and that I was a part of that, what that meant. Um, but even in high school and college, the faith circles that I found um, in high school, it was the predominantly Korean American uh, second generation. I wouldn't, it was a church, but it felt like youth group because most of us were like middle school, high school kids right. gathered by a white pastor who grew up as a missionary kid in Korea. So Robert Gady spoke better Korean than a lot of us did because he grew up in Korea and we had not. So that was kind of the crazy thing. So, so that's how it played. Um, I always knew I was Korean. I always knew I had grown up in a Christian home and there was no like separating the two. Hmm. Can you like distinguish like what, how you differentiate like Korean-American from Asian-American? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up with a very distinct, like, you are Korean, you were born in Seoul, um, and the distinction for me was at least elementary through, like, high school. I was Korean. That meant I also was lumped in with anyone from Asia. So when I, so first, when we moved to the suburbs, we were the first, at least we were told, we were the first non-white family to move into the school district. And then eventually others moved in. And then by the time I was in high school, there were a handful of other um, Asian families that were there. Some were Chinese, some were Korean. There were a handful of Filipino families. Um, but I remember like, in elementary school being called a chink mm -hmm. and being like, yo, I'm not a chink. <laughs> like, right. you're gonna use a racial slur like. throughout the right one, because that's not who I am. Um, but then I got to college and um, there, there was a Christian fellowship, Asian American Christian fellowship. And that's when I understood like, oh, it's more broadly folks from Asia. But even then it was very much a very East Asian centric understanding of what Asian American meant. But for me, it opened up a whole understanding of like, oh, there's this history that I clearly know nothing about <laughs> and an experience I know nothing about. And then we learned American history, U.S. history, but we learned nothing about any of us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember even just like throughout all my U.S. history classes, there was like one day for Japanese internment. Yes. One paragraph in the text. Right. And that's all we got. And then yep. I think just like this past year, maybe year and a half or so, I think like the only way that I've learned like our history, Asian American history is like on my own accord. Mm -hmm. Even like growing up in like elementary school, if we ever had to do like a country project or something like that, the only way I would learn about Korea is if I chose Korea. Right. So the only ever time I would learn my own history is if I assigned it to myself. Yes. And so even like in my personal time, like, <laughs> during my internship for social work, um, we had to like do like check off different um, tasks to like meet the competencies of social work. And one of them is like diversity and inclusion. And so anytime I have a task like that, I worked at a domestic violence shelter. And so all my like diversity, um, like research projects were catered uh -huh. to like Korean American domestic violence or like yes. how Asian Americans are affected by and um it's hard because it's like why it's like white is so the norm mm -hmm. that we even have to call it like Asian American but when you say American right you always have to say like 
it's like a black American, Asian American, yep. whatever, fill in the yep. blank. Yeah. American, you immediately think of a white person. Yes. And that's just like, that just like emphasizes that white is the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think like going back to just your like story of, of you um, kind of moving here, my mom, she's half Korean, but she was born in Seoul and okay. um, kind of grew up there until about eighth grade. They kind of moved back and forth, but she spent a lot of her time there. And I don't know if this is your experience, but when she was in the States, I, mm-hmm. um, her parents really, really pushed assimilation mm-hmm. her because they wanted her to succeed. They wanted right. her to survive. Mm-hmm. And, like, so they didn't really speak the language in the house anymore unless like my grandma's friends were over yeah um but other than that like they really like I guess what I've seen is that generation really emphasized assimilation in order for their kids to kind of make it survive yeah I think maybe they looked at their own experience and saw that when they didn't assimilate it was hard sure but in that, you're kind of trading. You are trading, like, yourself in a piece oh, yeah. of you. And yeah. so I don't know if that was your experience of, do you feel like your parents wanted you to assimilate? Or or were they more, since they were more, like, first generation? I know it's a different. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was. So when we came, it was the spring of 71. Um, and... My parents, they pushed school. So, you know, A's were the only thing acceptable. But my parents also made it very clear that we should learn the language. And I have crazy memories of my parents, my mom in particular, making worksheets for me and my sister to complete in the summer before we could do anything fun, which is crazy one, because they were both at work. So we were latchkey kids kind of taking care of ourselves in the summer. And we had worksheets. We had worksheets um, teaching us like the Korean alphabet and how to write and how to read. And then they would have like math worksheets for us. And then we could play. And I don't know why we didn't think to like lie over the phone and be like, yeah, we're done. (laughs) Um, But, um, but the experience was, it was a lot harder to maintain that once we moved out to the suburbs, Mm -hmm. when we were in the city, it was a lot closer because we were still in proximity to more Koreans. Church was a lot closer. Once we moved out to the suburbs, it would be a few years before there was enough Korean church folk who had moved out to the suburbs to establish churches. Um, But in that, I think it was a different kind of assimilation. Right. So it wasn't that they didn't want me to assimilate. It's that they wanted me to assimilate um, at school, but not at home. And so it was really hard to try to manage that as a child. I think, um, uh, how do you mean like how do you develop friendships with someone that you're also being told is your competition Mm. and the person that you have to prove yourself to and over and above I think um that was kind of challenging and then um and then I think over the over time my mom just got tired of making worksheets (laughs) so I'm grateful now Back then, I hated it, but grateful now, I can read and write like at the first or second grade level. Um, I can read a hymnal and sing along, even though I don't know what I'm singing (laughs) at church. Um, I can say the Lord's Prayer in Korean. (laughs) Um, And 
And if I watch enough K-dramas um, and like binge so that that's what I'm hearing, right. I, can, I can look away from the, uh, the words and understand. Like, so that's like a game for me. It was like, <laughs> can I watch enough K-dramas in a time so that I can not pay attention to the subtitles? <laughs> <laughs> so I, so you said like, being Korean and being Christian were kind of like one. Mm -hmm. Can you, so your book, I'm gonna tell the listeners a little bit. Yes. So her book is um, Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And I feel like just the title of that is what everyone needs to read during this time in our country. Um, but you talk a lot about in the book um, about kind of your faith and how um, you navigated those spaces. And I think like with the with the mindset, not only of like the Christian mindset of like women need to be silent, but also I think at least in like Korean culture, mm -hmm. either younger people or sometimes I don't, in my experience it's definitely like younger people, but probably all also women mm -hmm. yes and so but you kind of had your own journey of like getting to um learning how to speak up mm -hmm. and you talk about it kind of as a gradual process do you feel yeah. like there was like one instance where you finally spoke up and you were like okay there's no turning back now or was it like multiple instances like along the way Oh, there were so many instances along the way. And, you know, after every instance, it's, there's a moment of like, yes, there's no turning back. Oh, no, I'm never doing this again. Like it's both at the same time, because I'm sure you've experienced this and you know too, right? There's the like, oh yeah, I can't not say something or do something. But then when you finally do it, there is the the um, release of knowing that you have said what God has pressed on your heart and that weight is off, right? Mm -hmm. And that is so freeing and so amazing and so exciting, but it is terrifying. Right. Because it's unsettling. It throws you off kilter and people don't like that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, um, I think people around us are uncomfortable and, and I'm sure we've felt that way too. When somebody else is the one speaking up and you're like, Oh, don't, 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 don't do that. Cause you know, what's going to happen. And then you're like, Oh my gosh, they did it. Shoot. Shoot. I, I love how like in your book, you say like speaking up about injustice isn't like, I don't know what you say. Something about like, uh, like furthering the divide or like disrupting yes. it's bringing to light the sin and the pain and the struggle that's happening mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um so often that's kind of like what holds a, holds people back from speaking up is mm -hmm. like quote unquote causing that disruption right it's kind of like when you're like deep cleaning your room you kind of got to make it super messy before yes. you actually get it clean. Yes. And right now in 2020, I feel like it's that peak moment where yeah. I haven't started sorting stuff. Yes. It, yeah. It is just all over the floor. All over. Yep. Yep. And that's where we're at. But that needs to happen in order to sort through and be like, do I want to keep this? Or right. is this something that is no longer serving me? Right not giving me joy and not producing more love <laughs> I'm a no shout out but yeah. like we can do that in our in our home spaces but we can also do that in in our social spaces in our yes. belief systems yep I think that um for me it started as um like a cultural identity kind of development and realizing oh I'm Korean American and mm. it, like stepping into that but that kind of led me into 
kind of picking up other areas of my life and looking at the things within them. So whether it be like the Christian circles that I'm in and the beliefs that those hold and whether or not my values align with them, just going through um, different parts of my own identity and the spaces I was in and determining what I wanted to keep and um, what I needed to let go of. And I think that's hard though, because in leaving those spaces, you also like you give up a lot yeah um and you also talk a lot about imposter syndrome yes um and even like now when I say like like I recently um sent a poem to the Asian American Christian Collaborative yeah um and in the bio it was like Meg Peck is a Korean American writer and I was like that that gave me like a lot of like I felt empowered I was like yes I am but also I was like but am I like and so I think that I've had to I've struggled a lot with like being mixed um I like and I'm white presenting um a lot of times like I feel like a fraud but um reading your book and then I don't know if you ever met uh Lucy Hoppy she's a professor at Baylor um but she is in the social work department and um it was right I think she may may have told me about your book I can't remember but I was in her office one day and I was struggling because it was like the midterm elections in Texas with like Beto and Ted Cruz and there was like all sorts of all sorts of things going on and then I was like and I'm out here trying to say that I'm a woman of color and she was like she was not having it she looked yeah she was like meg you are you are mm-hmm. a korean american woman and mm-hmm. you don't have to spend your time proving that to mm-hmm. people because mm-hmm. that's, it's who you are mm-hmm. you come with a receipt mm-hmm. and you don't like and i was spending so much time like like with the spaces i was in if i was in all like Asian spaces like if mm. AMIV or something yeah I felt like the whitest person in the room but anytime I was in all white spaces I was like this isn't me yes um, and and okay this is just a crazy story side note but the day you came to Baylor the first time <laughs> um I don't even we didn't even need to go into the second time <laughs> First time was so good though because it I, was. I went to um, uh, the college service at this like predominantly white um, like mega church that I was a part of at the time, and I um, was like still just like in awe of everything I had heard, and then I like went like out to the I don't know the atrium or whatever, and there was this other. Um, this other girl out there it was just us two in the foyer or whatever and like she comes up to me it was this is crazy this is gonna blow your mind she comes up to me and she goes um this may be a weird question but are you mixed and I was like yes because you know I could tell she was mixed I feel like mixed people we have yeah this- yeah yeah like and she like um she like broke into tears and she was like oh gosh. and she she was um, mixed Korean American also and she started crying she's like not gonna believe this but you are the first mixed Korean American I've seen ever in Waco or at Baylor she was like Man. sister I felt it was so beautiful because neither of us cause there are not it's it's there are not a lot of yeah. us or yeah. I don't know where they're hiding <laughs> but it was like so beautiful to go from like going to that event to like literally like an hour later just having that and having that solidarity I think um it like oh wow it gave me um it just made me feel like less alone I guess Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because the mixed I think the mixed experience it is one that is not too talked about and so um 
it was like definitely and it, to have the same mix too I was yeah like, oh, it's you it's me and Joanna Gaines we're the only <laughs> one <laughs> um so I guess like just going back to imposter syndrome I know yours was more in terms of like becoming a speaker and yeah. um but do you have any advice um for anyone who kind of deals with it sure I still have it Oh my goodness. I still have it. I was on, I was on a webinar. I don't remember how many weeks ago, cause it all just kind right. of leads together. And, um, and it was for Korean Americans and we were discussing race and I was looking at kind of the lineup of speakers and I reached out to a group of, um, women that I am on a group text with and was like, I am the only one who does not have an additional degree. Like I'm the only one with a BS. Everyone else has extra letters. Some have many letters. And, um, and this just happened a couple of weeks ago. So listeners, if you don't, you know, again, I think it's like finding your voice. It's not necessarily a one-time thing, but it is over and over trying to believe in the work that God has done, is doing, and will do. Mm. And that is hard to believe when um, you can't necessarily see or provide proof, right? Like, I feel like a degree is proof. <laughs> um, and it gives you some sort of credibility in the world and in the culture. And I needed these ladies to tell me, like, you don't need any of that. Like, you already have a doctorate in these fields because you've lived it, you've done the ministry, you've done the work. You just don't have the debt and the title. And I was like, yes. <laughs> but sometimes I still like want the title, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that imposter syndrome is something that is a constant wrestling and reckoning with, do I believe in this culture's value system? Or am I really going to believe that God has invited me into this space? So like for you, when you were talking about like Meg Peck is a Korean American writer and you're like, yes, am I? I? You know, it's that, it's still that feeling of like, am I this, am I? Um, and what does that mean? And then, uh, you know, to connect it a little bit with that image and visual, you gave the example of like cleaning your room and I loved it because it's exactly what's going on in this country. And I hope it continues because I don't think we've hit the peak chaos of it all. But like what you were saying, and I'm sure you know it recently as someone who had to move out of Waco, right? Like your space has to be a disaster because you have to get a sense of everything that's there mm. before you can get rid of what you don't need, decide what you don't need, pack up what you want, and then decide what you're going to take with you into that next place. And I think that that is a little bit like imposter syndrome. Every time it is, am I going to take this lie that tells me I am not X and carry that with me to the next thing? Or am I gonna say, no, I do not need this. I already have so many other things I'm dealing with. This lie, I am not going to carry with me. Mm -hmm. And that's hard because I feel like, um, particularly as a Korean American woman, there's just that, I, I carry that. I carry some of it in my bones. I carry the stories of my grandmother and my mom. And it's hard to say I'm going to let those things go because some of those pains and ironically some of those lies are foundational in helping me see the truth which is we are not those lies but we have been told those same lies generation after generation after generation so i don't want to forget that my mom and my grandmother were also told that their value was less than mm. i don't want to forget that because i don't want to believe and I should not believe that this is a new thing right but I don't want to carry it and believe it hmm. that's good Ooh, that's good <laughs> I feel like 
you just called me out. You just called me out. Yeah. <laughs> you are a writer. <laughs> and you don't have to prove you're a Korean, your Korean-ness. Um, but even that, I think, is so, but that's also real. Like, that's why my parents wanted me to learn the language was because they, they felt like if we couldn't speak Korean to my grandparents who are still in Korea, then they felt like they would have failed because we still, we weren't Korean. We were becoming American. Mm. And, and I hear it a little bit in their disappointment that our kids are not fluent in Korean, but they're so grateful when they hear their grandkids say, Harmony and Harabuji instead of grandma and grandpa. And so there is that kind of back and forth of, well, okay, so I'm, but I'm not Korean. I'm not Korean. We left Korea. And Korean American is not, it's not frozen in time, right? So what, what is Korean American in your experience should be different than mine. Right and should inform both because I need to hear your experience to help me understand like all of my nephews and nieces are mixed. Mm. My kids are the only one, like I'm the only one who married in. Okay. What does that mean? Mm. You know, what does that mean? What, like I know what it has meant for me and my sister and the things that we do as an extended family with our kids and how they understand like being a Korean American family. Mm. So much. <laughs> That's true. It is. And that, I think it's good to recognize that each person has a different experience. Otherwise, comparison just, just leaks in. Mm-hmm. And even for, I've had friends um, at Baylor who they grew up in Asia mm-hmm. or like a lot of um, Baylor students, they're, their parents are in the business world and like Singapore and um, that area and um, they like all know the language and stuff and sometimes like they're like they like it's almost like I'm comparing myself to them and they're not even actually like they're not Asian and so but they have that third culture um, being in the in-between and like we can connect on that level but I need to be careful because it's like well you know what I mean like yeah it's just been like interesting to navigate um and I think I'm still learning a lot about because I still find myself like not overcompensating but like saying things like well I know how to make mandu so yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) there's different things like that so it's definitely something I need to be thinking about for sure Today is Monday, October 16th, 1978. Today is Monday. Today I feel sad because we can't see our parents a lot on weekdays because they go to work early in the morning. I only see them in the early morning and at nighttime. I think school is fun. I only have one good friend to play with at school. Her name is Amanda. When night came, we went to bed. Today was a very nice day. Mm. Um, when you asked if there was a piece of writing from earlier or any time in our life that might be significant, um, I actually laughed because I have this this diary, this yellow notebook. You can see it, but the listeners <laughs> can't. Um, and this was started the fall, um, I think it was the fall that we moved to the suburbs. And I share it with you because my dad had told me that I should keep a diary, a journal, just to get a sense of what my days were like that I might one day forget. Hmm. And I realized that I want to keep this forever and my kids have read it and they've laughed. Oh, we've (laughs) had lots of laughter over this. Um, And I keep it as a reminder that I did not know even then how important it was to have permission to write Mm. and share with just myself what I thought was important. Um, And I I keep this notebook and I think, (laughs) 
<laughs> this eight-year-old girl had no idea mm -hmm. um, that she would feel lonely because she only had one good friend, but that it wouldn't always be that way. But sometimes it would, and it would be okay. It would be okay. So that's what I wanted to share. Switching gears a little bit, I have your book here with me, <laughs> um, and I'm just going to read a little, just like two sentences from yeah. Um Okay, so this is, it's kind of about just um, kind of what we've been talking about, unlearning and learning and um, how everybody's process and story is different. Um, so you say, the process of learning, discovering, and testing out your voice can't be separated from your cognitive and spiritual development. Conflicts are bound to happen when people at different stages of development are testing out their voices. I am feeling that so hard right now. <laughs> because in one sense, I feel like kind of glad that people who were thinking one way in 2016 are now thinking another way mm -hmm. but at the same time I'm like it's about time like, yeah were we just shouting at the void yeah uh, and so I guess maybe like how I don't know like how to have maybe patience or understanding for people who are kind of like just showing up to the party like now. right um because it's just a balance of like, on one hand, white supremacy has been here since before America was even a country, mm -hmm. 400 years plus. But on the other hand, it's like, we've all had to start somewhere. Right. And like, kind of like what Caitlin Curtis says, like, there's still so much waking, there's still so much decolonizing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <sighs> <laughs> I'm, I'm running out of patience so I'll say yeah. oh yeah I am running out of patience as well and you know there have been things that have happened even just recently like within the last 24 hours where people are like I can't believe the president did x and I'm like uh I don't know why you're surprised I really feel like that's what he's been doing the whole time uh and I think part of it is you know, you have to, there is the remembering where you were however many weeks, days, months, years ago, mm -hmm. and what it took, and, and who was patient with you, and who wasn't, right? So um, there were, I had plenty of people who were very patient with me in my journey, but I also had people who were like, I'm not, I'm here for you, but I'm not that person for you right now. And I think that's the discernment part is I am not like, to, you know, right now, since probably 2015, 20, maybe before that, actually, um, less patience with people who suddenly awoke and then are like, yes, I'm here. Like, mm, are you? Are you going to be here a year from now? Right. Are you going to be here six months from now? Um, but I also know that, again, there are, um, there are going to be teachers, mentors, friends who will journey with you at different times of your life in different stages of awakening and decolonization. Um, not everyone is going to have patience for you. So I tell that to myself. Like not everyone's going to have patience for me in this time. Um, just like I'm not going to have patience for everyone hmm. at this time. So there is a bit of a give and take and understanding. Like I am not the person I was at 21. Mm -hmm. um, there were signs of that person at 21 for sure. Okay. But at 21, no, I was not going to try to figure out how to get to a march and um, decide whether or not it was worth, you know, trying to get around curfews and lack of public transportation and things like that. That, that, that wasn't even on my radar at 21. Mm. Um, so I'm grateful for the people who loved me then um, for who I was and um, 
and I try to be loving to the people who are upset that the last you know week has become what it is. I just, like you, I'm not out here passing out cookies and gold stars to everyone. And I think that's okay. I think that's okay. I think there's a danger in every little bit of awareness being awarded and, you know, patted on the back as a congratulations. Right. Um, right. So I think that's part of it. That's mm-hmm. part of it. So what would you say to the people who are now um, trying to use their mm-hmm. pre- to advocate especially like maybe even like centered around what's happening now um Mm -hmm. and maybe like for non-black people Mm -hmm. they can use their privilege um and their voice to advocate power yeah i would say um One of the phrases that I cannot stand is, well, we want to be the voice for the voiceless. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I know people who actually have no physical voice. They still have a voice. They still have a presence and a way to influence the world around them. We're not voiceless. And so um, the Black community is not voiceless. They they don't need more non-Black people to behave as if we are in charge. Hmm. we need to keep learning. We need to learn what it means to be allies or comrades or partners. Um, We need to understand that sometimes um, our voice is actually not necessary. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So today is one of those strange days on social media. Um, uh, It's a, they're calling it a blackout Tuesday. And there's a lot of confusion around what it's supposed to be and who's supposed to do what. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have black friends who have blacked out, but I also have black friends who are like, Oh no, 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 no blacking out. You need to use your voice. You need to be promoting other black voices, other black movements. Um, and, and uh, what I'm, discerning at this point is what I can do as a Korean American is to sit back, cool my thumbs, back off my phone and listen and remember that the black community is no more a monolith than the Asian American community, Mm. right? There's no one person who speaks for the whole. And, um, and I think that for me, reminds me of the humanity of what's happening now and for us as non-black people of color we are not a monolith Mm. we are not a monolith and so part of why I more and more make clear I Um, Korean American and Asian American, right? Is that I come, my experience comes from this little slice Mm. of what it means. And it comes from an even smaller slice when you think about the fact that my family and I came in this early 70s versus folks who have come in the 80s and 90s. Right. And, um, And so there isn't one good way to be an ally. I will say one of the best things is um, when you're already in relationship with people uh, to learn to ask not only how are you doing, but how can I be a support? Mm. Have you had enough rest? Is there anything that I can provide or see if my networks can provide? Mm. Or do you just not want to talk? Because that's okay too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, just like finding resources and people to follow um, in order to learn, um, mm-hmm. not just about what's happening now, but just in general, um, anti-racism, justice, or whatever, 
other recommendations you have? Like, do you have um, maybe just a couple um, people or organizations that you would suggest people to follow? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first organizations um, that I would suggest, uh, really particularly for white listeners, but I think for me as a non-white listener or a participant, it has been great to watch um, Latasha Morrison and Be the Bridge and the work and uh, the consistent commitment to building bridges. Um, even when you want to burn it all down. And Latasha also acknowledges that sometimes you can't build things until things are torn down. So um, Be the Bridge and Latasha Morrison to, to definitely follow. And then um, I would say Chasing Justice is a new organization and that is co-led by um, Sandra Van Opstel and Mark Reddy to POC. And um, it's a new organization, but both Mark and Sandra have been doing the work for decades. Okay. And for me, um, and I've, you know, full disclosure, been helping um, on the side. I'm just excited to see organizations that are led by people of color, women of color. You know, for me, that's so exciting. Um, and then another organization that I serve on the board for, so again, full disclosure, is um, Evangelicals for Social Action, ESA. Uh, and the founder, Ron Sider, um, was the executive director for many, many years. But in the last few years, that leadership has been um, really turned over in a beautiful, powerful way to Nikki Toyamazito, who is also a great friend of mine. So to see like a historically white organization that has worked in the justice space, in the Christian space, mm -hmm. be turned over to the leadership of a Japanese American woman, I just can't tell you enough, like how much I love it and want people to know about it and support it. Awesome. Okay. Now I have a final question for you. Yeah. It's kind of like the namesake of the podcast. Um, really the podcast is made um, just to hear from, from people um, what really they wish they would have known um, mm -hmm. when they were younger. Um, and for any particular, it could be super deep. It could be whatever, but yeah, just um, what do you wish who knew when you were my age? <laughs> so I can give you some really not so deep things, but very important. Off the top of my head, I would say things like use eye cream and an SPF every day. <laughs> uh, moisturize, exfoliate, take care of your skin. Um, and I would also say kind of in that vein, I wish I had known at 21 in my early 20s, and I think this is something I have tried to impress on my daughter who is 24. Um, you need to give yourself permission to take care of yourself mm. because that also serves the community. It is not selfish. It's actually really a gift to your friends, to your community when you are healthy when you're healthy emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. Um, so if that, you know, get off of social media, media on a regular basis, you know, go walk in nature on a regular basis. Um, take care of your body, drink lots of water, um, watch the movies that make you laugh, you know, things like that. I wish I had had more permission. It felt like I was being lazy if I was doing that. Yeah. And um, I still feel it a lot, but it's been good. <laughs> so it's been hard. I feel bad. My daughter's living at home now because of COVID-19, but it's been good because I think there is this mirroring back of like, oh, she's taking a nap. Mm. I want to take a nap. I'm going to take a nap, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, from kind of lighthearted, use SPF every day, moisturize, eye cream, to take care of yourself. And then I would say, um, uh, it's okay to fail. Mm. 
it's okay to fail. Um, I, I, I grew up really being told that failure was not an option. Right. And I think because of that, I just was so afraid to take risks. Mm. And um, so you don't know, you don't know what you don't know until you try. And sometimes you're going to make, you're going to, you're going to belly flop. It's inevitable. But every now and then you land the dive. So um, it's okay to fail because I think in that process, you learn how to discern God's voice and God's invitation. And you learn, um, you learn in a very real way what you mean by saying God is with me. And um, so I wish I knew I could take more risks. <laughs> so good. So good. Well, to wrap it up, I'm yep. just one little last line from your book. Um, and it just says this. Sometimes we will need someone to show up and push us to speak up. I want to be that kind of mentor. And as, a, and as I'm an older Korean-American woman, it's culturally easier and appropriate for me to assume the role of auntie. Thank you for being my auntie and my mentor. I learn so much from you every day. Thank you, Meg. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of When I Was Your Age, featuring Kathy Kong. If you're interested in Kathy's work or just more about her, you can find her on any social media platform at Miss Kathy Kong. Additionally, we want to recognize that it is a very heavy time in our country right now. And if you would like more resources on just ways to become educated or a list of rest resources, you can find us on both Twitter and Instagram at WIWYA underscore podcast. Thanks again. Thank you.